Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Mike and Tom are washing their mouths out with soap because the Everything Sequel Podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Spider-Man edition. Today we're talking Spider-Man 2. Michael Schantz here of the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, the man aiming his web right at my face, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Say hello to everyone, Tom. It rides up in the crotch a little bit, too. (laughs) I love that scene. That scene of the mo- was fully improvised. They did 25 uh, takes and took the first take. Yeah, well, there's a no- There's so much to admire about it. Uh, I-, I admire how well a movie like this handles comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's comparative to other movies that where the comedy is, you know, uh, lets, lets them down. Yeah. Uh, but also, awkward comedy is done very well, right. <laughs> which is yeah. e- extra hard to do. Sure, and it's something that you know that you'll you'll see in any mainstream franchise movie now, and it's always botched. And here is a is a masterclass in how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the most interesting things about the way Sam Raimi films comedy in this film, which seems counterintuitive, but it's actually if you know anything about comedy filmmaking, it's not. That whenever whenever we have a comic sequence, everything is in camera. Yeah, right. Yeah, in real time. So it puts it on the level of like of silent films, you know, mm-hmm. or or cartoons. Right. Like that's the level that you're working at. You know, it's like it's Buster Keaton, it's Laurel Hardy, and a lot of that is because you choose not to edit. I, and I was just going to say the same thing because you don't just film the joke. Yeah, because you don't just film the joke and you don't edit yeah. into a reaction or into the, you know, into yeah. a, a an eyebrow raise or a wink or, you know what I mean? It's just the joke's the and he joke. Does that again, and the and joke again is and always again. good enough to yeah. just be in camera, by the way. So. Yeah, and, and they just work, they work on the execution of the joke and they slow everything down so you just. You're just watching it in real time. Yeah. And that's a big reason as as to why the comedy in this film more or less works every single time. Agreed. And it's a good job because there's a lot of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> there's a lot of slapstick in this film. So much. <laughs> but for me, I mean it's one of the it's one of the shining lights too. I mean, it's just one of those yeah. it's one of the reasons this movie works as well as it does. And to you know, to that point, this movie has ninety three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow, that's a that's a big number, and uh, it is a big number. You know, it's one of the huge, huge, you know, kind of when uh, what was it, nineteen ninety five? I think is Waterworld, and it was a two hundred million dollar budget for a picture, and everybody was out of their minds with I can't believe that. 
And here we are in 2004, budgeted $200 million without really kind of blinking an eye. It was just after the success yes, of Spider-Man. Sure. It was, this is a foregone yeah. conclusion. You're going to get opening an opening weekend of 88.1 and gather 373.5 million. And at the beginning, you know, in the aughts, as we'll say, the early aughts, this is, you know, where a worldwide market really comes into play because, you know, in the world, $788.9 million. And that, I I always think that that this is a this is a really good movie for international distribution because sure. so much of it is visual. Yeah, like you, you I don't say you don't need the dialogue, but you could get by without knowing what was being said on screen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that's Sam not to Raimi, say Sam Raimi is a visual communicator. He is, but that's and this is an extremely visual movie. It's an extremely visual movie, but that's not to say the one thing that this movie does so well. That Spider-Man Three doesn't, or at least doesn't as successfully as this movie. You know, there's writing in this movie in which the characters have arcs. It all makes sense. There's good acting going on. Phenomenal acting, and all of that's within a, a whole lot of spectacle. And yes. with movies with big spectacle like this mo- one. At least for me, as a as a movie going audience member, you know I remember that stuff. But what I really latch on to are those great acting moments and the character arcs, and those are the things that end up mattering mm. and actually making it a good movie. It's the difference between yeah. this being at ninety three percent and the next movie being, you know, I think it's sixty three percent, and that's generous. Mm. That, yeah. <laughs> you know. They're both generous. Let's face it. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. You know. You. You might not think this is a ninety-three percent movie. Uh, no. I, I probably don't. agree with you, but I think I like this movie a little more than you. And maybe. As previously uh, stated, it's directed by Sam Raimi, and if you know movies, you know Sam Raimi. Of course, Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two, Army of Darkness, Dark Man, and then he. Something like as quirky and silly and but fun as Quick and the the Quick and the Dead, mm-hmm. and then we get into movies that I just love, like A Simple Plan and Drag Me to Hell, or even you know, maybe not love it as much, but an outlier like For Love of the Game. He directs a baseball mm-hmm. movie. <laughs> you know, Sam yes. Raimi directs yeah. a baseball movie. It's weird. It is, yeah, absolutely. Bubba Tell Hep as well. Yeah. That in there. Yeah, it's it's he's uh this is an outstanding exhibition of his talents. Yeah. As a filmmaker in virtually every area. Mm-hmm. But a chief among them for me is that that ability to paint the CGI into the screen. Just because yes. we've seen so many examples of directors who are totally who just cannot do that. that. I yeah. uh, one thing I read that I found wholly fascinating was how proud some of the visual effects people were. I think I started mentioning it in our ranking episode. They were so proud of the scene in which they're cutting off the Doc Ock's arms, the doctors. Yes. 
Yeah. Because they themselves, upon watching the movie, couldn't figure out what was practical and what was digital. Yeah, and that's it. And that says really all you need to know about how effects are used in this movie overall. Definitely, and and it's a it's a rare treat to have that. You know that that is the ultimate goal of effects in twenty twenty two. Right. I mean, we you know, we you talked know, before about how Terminator two. We, I was just going to say, yeah, because we 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 were talking know, about this 90s. standard that Terminator yeah. two set about that other films just don't follow. But you know, mo- most a lot of that was born out of necessity, and you know, as soon true. as James yeah. Cameron gets his hand o- hands on yeah. all, you know, all that all he can muster, he goes, yeah. he goes fucking nuts and, and <laughs> yeah. forgets he was ever a storyteller. Uh, but but here, you know, we even with like you say, without putting too fine a point on it, uh, everything kind of looks seamless and is literally because the design and the cinematography is so good. Mm-hmm. Every element on the screen is subject to that. And I think we were talking about sheen of brilliance that 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 they do. He does things with color and lighting or his cinematographers Mm -hmm. as well do things with color and lighting in this movie that I've never seen done with computer generated imagery before. Yeah. And it's such a I don't know. It's to me, it, it would be such a lesson to other people who have like films with a lot of effects in it's like take the emphasis off the effects mm-hmm. let them just be part of what's happening on on screen, screen part of the story part of yeah work on everything else yes, <laughs> yes. like bump up everything else to a new level yeah and it'll kind of take care of itself i mean that's the lesson i learned from this film. i read something about this movie that surprised me then shocked me then made me really ponder which was the last effect of Doc Ock falling into the harbor, drowning, Yeah, is completely digital. Wow. Yeah. And when, you, when I hear that, it makes sense. Yeah. But in the whatever dozen times I've seen this movie, I've never thought of that once. No, no. I never am watching him sink to the bottom of the ocean floor thinking that's a digital effect. Never. Well, to quote Bruce Campbell in this film, <laughs> it helps maintain the illusion. <laughs> Boy, does he know how to give himself give a cameo. Yeah, cameo king. Oh, I love him in this movie. Yeah. The shoelace, the tie, then stop. Yeah. Where do you think you're going? Oh, I'm afraid the pointing to both signs, all of it. I just think it's it's a a brilliant piece of comedy. And I like the one in the third one less. But <laughs> but because of the, be- the comparative quality, yeah. it's the highlight of the film. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I remember thinking it's one of the best things in the film. Yeah. But but you also the get the lesser of that- the Campbell cameos. The lesser of the Campbell cameos, you also get the sense they're leaning on him more heavily to bring the goods. Yeah, yeah, than in this yes, film. absolutely. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, let's start at the beginning. Uh, for one, this is the only Spider-Man movie I believe out of any Spider-Man movie that's won an Academy Award Best Visual Effects. So well, it's 
well earned. And it's well, yeah, exactly. It's well earned. Or I, I would change that to best disguising of visual effects. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's have yet to come to fruition. <laughs> well, let's uh, start where you like to start. Uh, we got the credits here, pointy credits. I, I wrote down. Oh, uh, but the, uh, the title, the title sequence is magnificent. So, do we have a new impasse here? What the drawn the drawn recap month? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm something... not sure if it's I... been done before or since, but well, I mean, the next movie does it as well. But oddly, you know, if you want to, if 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 you <laughs> those are just stills. I know if you if you want to see the difference between the two films, yeah. you can yeah. see how well it's done here and how clumsily it's done in the next one. Because in the next one, had... you're seeing all the things you saw in this one. We've had adjacent embasses, which is the animated recap sequence. Yeah. Of course, I'm thinking of Weekend at Bernie's 2. Yeah. Um, but these are, you know, this is specifically comic book graphic. Right. Reta- uh, comic book graphic retellings. and That was my genius... note. I said we're keeping a comic theme, but yeah. we're, we have sort of this embass of a recap montage. Definitely. You know? Mm. Goes, so it goes back to the origins and the roots of the series in comic books and yeah. and the master. But it's satisfying as opposed to when Ang Lee does it in the Hulk because he's doing it throughout the narrative in a way that always made me. Not the Hulk, I guess it's just Hulk, right? But anyway, yeah, uh, I found it deeply unsatisfying in this movie, and it works oh. so well in this movie. Okay, we'll agree to disagree. Um, oh. But what I like, what I like. So you like that, did you? <laughs> Yeah, I did. Okay. Um, I'm a sucker for split screen. Um, just throw that out. <laughs> no more comments. Very good then. We'll move on. Moving but, on. No, well, just before we do, the masterstroke for me is the use of the spider web as a panel. Yeah. Right. As the lines of the panel, and I mean that's such a good piece of graphic design. Mm-hmm. Uh. So yeah, and. You know, this is the. I've already said this, but Danny Elfman's score—it's—it's definitely got the flavor of his Batman scores, but it's also modern and sleek, more choral. Well, maybe not more choral than Batman Returns, but (laughs) (laughs) there's a heavy choir on this one too, and it's kind of got that ominous feel that you associate with the Hans Zimmer uh, Batman movies, but prior you know prior to so obviously like danny elfman is is both thinking similarly and differently about superhero scores and i love it Mm -hmm. um but it's still very recognizably a danny elfman score and i love that aspect of it too and then one of the things i i guess because he's so like right at the top where where peter parker is on his little motor scooter and he's trying to get to work at his pizza shop And one of the first characters you see is his boss, who is played by Asif Manvi. And one of my notes is, like, what a deep bench this movie has. Oh, my God. Literally have that note. It's unbelievable. Deep deep bench of 90s, 2000 character actors. Yeah. Bill Nunn, Dylan Baker. Dylan Baker. We got Elizabeth Banks. Elizabeth Banks, yeah. It's... Uh, Elia Baskin, you know, revisiting us from 2010. (laughs) 
And then, so you've got, what's really great is like, you've got, you've got those, you know, you've got that deep bench of character actors. You've got like actors who, you know, were up and coming at the time, Tobey Maguire, James Franco. Uh, yeah, Kirsten right. Dunst. And then you've got people who, oh, actors who only exist in this time period. <laughs> That's like the third element of it. There's, the, there's, you've got one of the, na- you know, the daughter of one of the neighbors is the anorexic woman from the Christine Aguilera beautiful video. Okay, you know, yeah, it's, it's right, like, right, 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 right. <laughs> who was also in that episode of A Shield where she played a prostitute. Yeah, yeah, you know, I was going like, to say, I like remember so... her from The Shield. It's like so, you know, so in that moment. And I love the fact that the her brother who's sitting at the table, I assume it's her brother, who never speaks, mm-hmm. is from is Skip from season two of The Sopranos, Pussy Bump and Saros, oh FBI God, handler. That's right. And I'm just like, I'm just like, I love, I, I just love the historicity yeah. of, of movies almost as much as I love the timelessness. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, the the main cast of this movie would grace any sure, you know, right. movie in 2022. In fact, you know, uh, we need that kind of cast again. But <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, you've got these, these characters who only exist in this moment, historical moment in time. And I love that as well. Sure. Well, and, uh, you know, I mean, kind of speaking to the deep bench while simultaneously talking about something else we've talked about, which is, you know, you mentioned in our ranking episode when when Jonah Jay <laughs> mentions Doctor Strange and that's all you need. Yeah. And so this movie's got that, but it also has, you know, say a character like Dr. Kurt Connor. That Dylan Baker plays. And once you see like that arm cut off, you know exactly who that or I don't know. At least I do. I know that he's going to be that he could someday become the villain that he becomes. Oh, I don't know anything about that. Oh, so, yeah, he's the he's the lizard guy. That character. But they never got there. But they just never got there. But, you know, those are the things that I like about... Explains why they cast Dylan Baker in such an innocuous role. Exactly, right. But those are the things that I like about this this movie in particular, where, you know, those things are there for an audience to find, yes. but we're not, yeah. you know... We don't, we don't wedge them into a... a a D or an E story because we're that far down the pike, which is what happens in Spider-Man three. Well, that's it. And you know, it's, it's, it's an optional pleasure. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think we're learning that, that, that is all you need. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, And then, so, I I mean, I, obviously, you know, it's this, this opening sequence is full of all this broad physical visual comedy that's expertly timed and executed. Uh, but it also makes clear to me from the outset that this is all taking place in in the real world, and to mm-hmm. to me, you know the the when when his boss removes the sticker from yeah. from his from his hat or his helm is his helmet yeah his helmet stripping his him helmet. of his badge essentially and it half yeah and there's something about the way it half comes off yeah. <laughs> That reminds me, we're not in like a comic book superhero reality. This is the real world. Sure. And the other comparable moment for me is is the time it takes for him to remove the climbing rope 
from the pizzas yeah. when he does <laughs> when he, when, when he finds really out that, that he's failed. Yes. Yeah. They really take that moment and it it, it puts the I've never been able this... to quite figure out how he got into that closet. <laughs> no, well, it's just it's a bit, isn't it? It's, and it's really a just a bit, bit. but yeah. <laughs> uh, it's and it's you know it's uh it's mining it's mining the superhero for comedy but it's also mining it a la superman 3 but it's also mining it for the quotidian like mm-hmm. let's have a superhero in 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 an everyday reality doing something banal as delivering as delivering pizzas, pizzas and, sure yeah. Well, and, and you've talked really about do, this. I'm not doing a very good job of it. Not doing a good lovely. job of it. You talked about this before. I mean, I certainly as recently as the Star Wars series when you're taking your heroes down a peg. Yeah. And so Yeah, I mean, Spider-Man is Spider-Man and and he's a hero, but Peter Parker is a young you know, he's just removed from being a teenager. Right. Yeah, and, and yeah, so he's exactly. got he's got all the problems that we all had at that age, where you're broke, you have a small shitty apartment, you're yeah. struggling to make ends meet. It's really shitty apartment. Yeah, you, you know, know bathroom. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so all of that bu- gives the or a phone that bummed me out. Yeah. <laughs> no, no own phone. We're not quite to. That's another thing. There's you know between these two movies, even in 2007. There's a lot of characters with flip phones in that Spider-Man 3 still. <laughs> kind of made me laugh. And yet, and yet there are other parts of this movie that seem like they exist in the 1930s. Yeah. But I think that's <laughs> Sam Raimi, and I think he's... Yeah, yes. You know, that is Sam, Sam Raimi, co-writer of the Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah, right exactly. There. And, and there's, there, there's a quality that he brings that is so deft in this movie in which he's able to, as you said, I think, in our ranking episode bringing up that sort of 60s kind of Batman, you know, idea. He's able to bring in the Spider-Man kind of theme song from the cartoon in interesting ways that he also did in the first movie. And all of that plays on a level that, you know, it kind of, it's interesting that this movie can play on a level in which it's, absolutely rooted in the real world but also still kind of feels like the dick tracy movie it's and that's a tightrope to walk that sam raimi gives this movie like i also i also made the comparison to dick did you (laughs) but in relation specifically in relation to jk simmons's jj ah love him to me so this is i think it's the first movie right it's the he has one of my favorite all time lines when I think Peter asks him, "Isn't there anybody you trust?" He says, "Trust my barber." <laughs> That's great. <laughs> the just the performance is the perf to me, and this speaks to exactly what you say about it exists both in the real world and out of it. Yeah. Um, it's the perfect hybrid of live action and comic book performance. Yeah. Right. And this is what they were going for in Dick Tracy. Mm-hmm. And they used a hell of a lot of makeup and prosthetics to try and make it sure. happen. And yet J.K. Simmons manages it with minimal yeah. makeup and costume right. and pretty much just, just acting, acting. Right. Yeah. But also, but I mean, this performance is something else because he's he even he even moves like like he's 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 like a moving comic book panel. Yeah. 
Like, <laughs> even the way he moves his body looks like when your eyes cr- are following the a panels page. in a comic. Yeah, book. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they achieve. I mean, it's it's just wonderful work. I don't really know how they achieved it. And again, it's one of those before or since situations mm-hmm. where Dick Tracy didn't quite get there. No, and no right. one has seemingly ever got there since. But this is like this is. Then there's a couple of characters in The Walking Dead that that get pretty close, and it's really the only kind of graphic novel I know. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've heard actors who've worked on that show talk about really trying to put on screen what they saw in the, in panel. the panels. Um, Xander Berkeley, uh, who was also in Terminator yeah. Two, John John Connor's uh, foster father. Uh, he t- talks about just don't have to remind to get... me, sir. <laughs> trying to get the look that where he plays a character who's hanged at one point, and he yeah. wanted to get the exact expression look, yeah. that he saw in the comic book. So you know, obviously, that's something about doing comic book adaptations. That's clearly a part of the acting discipline. Mm, that's but interesting. J- but J.K. Simmons is just nailing it in a way that I I've n- I just never encountered right. ever again. So one thing I want to ask you about, because we gave a little play to uh, whatever, Michael Shabon Shabon. Shabon Shabon? Shabon Shabon. We were talking about the writing of the film. Yeah. And one thing I noticed between this movie and the third movie, I mean, I'm not going to say that this movie is run like a Swiss clock like we were talking about with uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, or Bogus Journey, rather. But you can, but like you had said, I think in our ranking episode, that there's a real kind of idea of writing behind it. And I can see machinations of, you know, I know exactly when the first act ends. 34 minutes, you know, seven, 17 minutes into this movie, we're all caught up. We have the new characters. We have the old characters. We know where they are, where, yeah, you know, what's going on in their lives, what is in front of them what's the obstacle in front of them we know all of that and 34 minutes in we're going to get done with the first act and uh, an hour later we're done with the second act and then we're going to have the finale you know i i can see all the machinations behind it in the writing i mean is it there for you on that level or yeah it's there for me on that level absolutely Uh, you know there's there's three distinct acts right right Um, right right I, I I think I think uh, what you're talking about in terms of you know like coming out of the last film into this new story, mm-hmm. you know they do that very efficiently. A birthday party is a great way to reintroduce the legacy cast. Sure. Um. I uh, what I I really respect the screenplay on the level of, uh, you know we're starting a new store a brand new storyline, but we're also continuing on a storyline from the last film. Yeah. And I think this film does really well to make that to make them interweave organically mm-hmm. uh, without without ever feeling like, you know, it's like a gear change, like you stop one story and start another. Yeah. Um, it all, it all feels like it, 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 it's, it's running as one. The parallel storylines are intersecting at just the right, at just time. the right times. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I love all that, but, and you know, um, what, what, where I think there are, writing problems in this film mm-hmm. is something that is very specific to Shabon and the way he writes screenplays because I've seen it in Star Trek Picard of which he is the showrunner for mm-hmm. 
and uh, I'm borrowing this term from from uh, Matt Myra from Star Trek: The Next Conversation because it's too good not to. <laughs> the problem he has is restacking. Oh wow! Um, that he will he will write a scene in this film. I think it's any scene involving Aunt May. Mm-hmm. He will write a scene that will take you so far and rather than moving on from that point he'll give you another scene which does exactly the same thing or another type of scene yeah right that is exactly the same so for instance in this film all the aunt may stuff you could do in two to three scenes and it's about seven or eight yeah because really the Um, only important one is his confessing about yeah his uncle and the bit, one of the biggest problems with Star Trek Picard is that that you know there's they they set up the story in the first episode. You have a finale at the end of the ten, however many episodes, and in between it's just restacking the same information again and again and again mm. in different ways. So you don't actually have anything but two episodes at the end, each end of the season. The problem here, in the in you know a, a cinematic screenplay, sure. is that. It, it weighs down what to me is an already sagging midsection mm-hmm. of this film. And it, it just kind of... it. I had that we, kind of the same note because... Yeah. You know, that like I said, that second act is a good hour. Uh, right, and we don't, we don't go... We, we, we're just reiterating the same information again and again and again. Right. And and that bit of the movie is already is already sagging a little under its own weight, and I think this just this really bri- and we build up such a good momentum in the first third of the film, right? And I you and know, then, and so by the time you get to the last the the final third of the film, a lot of that's been squandered by this really dense second act. Okay, yeah. Um, I won't completely. Yeah, that, I, would, I don't disagree with that. So you know, it's there's a problem of there's a there's a problem with pacing and there's a problem with storytelling, um, but you know that's that's the limits of it really. I'm not gonna go, uh, I'm not gonna go. But I, I that to me really is that really is a, a Shabon special. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, you know that's uh, that 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 kill that killed off that way of writing killed off. Uh, Star Trek Picard, but I mean, he's a really he's a high profile, really respected novelist. I haven't mm-hmm. gone around to reading any of his books, so I'm perfectly willing to believe yeah, right. that he understands that medium as well as everyone says he does. But because uh, I can see that sort of thing working quite well in a novel, mm. um, but here it's it, it's you know it, it you don't need to keep reiterating the same information. We need to be moving forward. All right, yeah. And he's not got a great sense of forward momentum in the way that he tells stories and writes scenes. Well, on that tongue lashing, why don't we take a break? (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't reflect, you know, that's not a reflection on the movie overall. I understand. And I like the fact that the movie also kind of, where we talked about this in relation to the Star Trek films, Mm -hmm. you know, that this, that it, it, Having Shabon on board, Chabon on board, uh, gives you a level of literacy. Yeah, right. Um, and they play with that, you know, the all the, the the fact that you know there's there's poetry in the film. There's mm-hmm. 
there's a there's a pl- play within the film importance of being earnest. earnest sure uh so you know it's interesting because you because it's based on a comic book and you've got a novelist writing helping to write the script so you're getting literacy from two from yeah from several angles spectrum yeah yeah <laughs> all right well let's take a break and then we'll come back we're off to a good start right after this I like to think I know something about beer, but nowadays even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing the 2004 film... Spider-Man 2, directed by Sam Raimi. All right, Tom. Now, I mean, we've been talking about sort of shaping the beginning of this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing I wanted to get to, though, was within this first act, there are plenty of moments. And I guess it's it's interesting for me to... I feel like I'm comparing this movie a lot in this yeah. talk to Spider-Man three because there's direct contrasts. Yeah. Cause really there's so are. many moments for like even just small, good acting moments, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. James Franco has this great moment where he, we, all he asks is how's the bug these days. <laughs> and I, you know, that with the disdain acting he's doing in the third one, yeah. Which feels like an overreach. And then I also read that he was doing Pineapple Express at the same time as that movie, which made me think maybe he was spread a little thin because I'm. He got that. He, he he got talked out of good acting by David Gordon. Green. Yeah, maybe. And we've seen plenty of examples we've seen of that. Plenty of examples of that. And so, you know, it's just interesting to me that you have, as we stated, like the band's all back together and he's getting. Yeah good performances in this movie and not in the next movie. And there's a disconnect for me there. I can't figure out beyond, uh, you know, the scope of the movies in which the next one is just bloated all to hell. But you know, what is it? Why, why are we not even getting individual moments? Because we have really good moments in this one. Yeah. I mean, and to me, part of it is Raimi is allowing the actors, you know, like 
we were even talking about the effects. It's in camera. Like he's just letting the camera sit on their faces, yeah. uh, not cutting, not editing away. See, yeah, you know, true. that kind of thing. I mean, you, it, it also, you know, what they're doing has, has much more of a solid backbone. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the, the conflicts between the characters, their relationships really make sense. It's all, yeah, that's given true. Where, given where we are in the story. And even, you know, I've got a note here about how well the the melodrama is handled. Yeah, right, yeah. Scenes. Because it is melodrama, you know. If you look at Aunt May, Aunt May you know, she's going through a foreclosure. Right. She's, she's in tears. She's financially bankrupt. This is all the stuff that, you know, it's like can really go too far mm-hmm. if you overcook it as they do in, in the, the next, next movie. Right. Um, You know, you've got all the all her mourning of Uncle Ben a guy we meet hear more about after he's dead than when he was alive. Were you saying just um, off off air? Were we talking about the the matter of degree, or was that on air? Yeah, I, I think that was on air. Um, and you, so you, they're just, I think, both the the actors and the uh, the directors and the writer are kind of keeping uh keeping it all within their grasp mm-hmm. and not leaning too too heavily into soap opera. Yeah. Uh, because, because the story is, is on point. Yeah, uh, it all kind of feels right, and uh, no one's straining too far in any direction to make something work. Yeah, it just feels like the train's all headed in one direction. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you know the train's on the tracks, and that really helps when we get to the, you know, the introduction of nominally our villain, Doctor Octopus, and mm-hmm. it, it's so. It grounds that character in in authentic emotions, in in reality. Yeah, it's understated and nuanced. And I was actually that's... reading a lot about the choices that they didn't make too, because that's it. That's all I yeah. think about when I look at um, Alfred Molina. I think, I think God. Well, you can see the. The, the road not traveled is Willem Dafoe. So it's like, that's part of the genius of this yeah. is, is it's, a, it's a great inversion of, of the green goblin, both visually and, you know, and emotionally and in acting style. Yeah. Cause one of the things they were deciding they about totally in the other whether direction. or not to do, and they cut it out was having say the arms speak to him and hearing their thoughts in their head. And it's like, you know that that happens in this movie, but yeah. you know it, from Sam Raimi's direction and Alfred Molina's acting. And there's a, to me, there's a direct contrast. It's all there on screen without kind of overbaking it, like you said, you know? Yeah, and there's there's another direct contrast to, to a, a, you know, a, a contemporaneous movie, which is the second Lord of the Rings film mm. with, you know, Gollum, Gollum schizophrenia. Yeah, right, which is, yeah. Which is, I mean, he is a living special effect and that is all done with editing. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to me that Alfred Belida does it all with just playing two different characters in the same body. Yeah, right. And it's completely and it's, clear it's which so one is which. so clear, always, at and all times, yeah. Is. Uh, and there's no, again, like, he's, he's surrounded by special effects and, you know, uh, models and miniatures, and yet... The film isn't actually using that to tell the story. Yeah. It's using him as an actor to tell the story. And it's just, 
it's it, it might seem like an obvious choice, but a ton of movies don't do it. Right. Yeah. And I could say the same so. for kind of what Peter Parker Spider-Man is going through in this movie, because I've heard complaints from people in the past about this movie about, well, it's kind of unclear what's going on with him and how he's losing his powers. No, not to me. And I don't, I don't agree with that. No, because no. he's got web imp- he's got web impotence. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you know, it's very clear. You just ha- you have to, you have to, you know, it's subtext, though. Yeah, exactly. But that's what I mean. There, because he can't say, I, you know, I Sam can't Raimi's come. allowing. You know what I mean? He's, yeah, it's, it's not the kind of movie where you go, guys, I can't come. <laughs> <laughs> but when you, when you see a, what's going on in his life. And yeah. you know that one of the things I always loved about that first movie is the last kind of closing shot, you know, that the idea that he's made this choice. She's yeah. the woman of his dreams has said, I'm in love with you. And he's in love with her, but says he's not and walks away from her uh, to protect her. And yeah. it's, you know, it's it's a, a springboard to this movie in a way. And I think this movie is supposed to take place a couple years later. But that yeah, definitely they're very specific about it. Th- and that means that that's two years of him not being able to go with his heart and all the stress that comes with that and stress about Aunt May and stress about even, you know, what, what he did with his uncle and 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 mm. sort of the guilt that he feels about that. And now he's got this problem with Harry and that this idea that he can't tell his best friend what happened because he'll lose his friend. And so all of that are psychological reasons. And that's interesting, you know, and it just manifests itself in, in web impotence. But even, I mean, yeah, web impotence obviously is, is like one of them, but also, and this is very clear when you're watching the movie, at least to me, Mm -hmm. and I don't think I'm over reading that whenever he's, going swinging through the city a lot of that is like emotional release yeah swinging. right like it but the movie doesn't come out and say no, it. yeah but you know you look at the moments of which he just goes out swinging around the city for pretty much no reason it's like well it's because psychologically he needs to do this mm-hmm. um yeah it's it's interesting as well like i could <laughs> i could definitely tell this was a movie made in the era of Dawson's Creek and the OC. <laughs> it's interesting. It's in the way they represent young people and their romances. Yeah, right. That montage of them going to the theater with the acoustic guitar track. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, it's right in that zone, isn't it? Of, uh, <laughs> that's what they're leaning into. And I'm glad, you know, I, I, I think that's a good choice you know it's a it's a story about young people it should reflect the kind of teen tv drama that's out there covering those kinds of subjects right. um and then later on in the movie it gets very nor Ephron, mike nichols um mm. so romantic comedy as a genre is like a huge part of this yeah. film uh and i think i like that they don't shy away from that mm-hmm. i think that's very smart well, and that's the uh, thing is that, you know, like because this is, you know, it's like a previously this this has been a genre about rugged masculinity. right? Well, I was just going to say, because this, this movie's not. Yeah. The that. one thing that, that 
Raimi is able to do is deftly kind of combine different genres in that way. Yeah, completely. And obviously, you know, he's come from a specifically a horror film background. And he's definitely... But I think that's also what works for the comedy because, you know, you... Mm -hmm. You've been read uh, and comedy. No, yeah, comedy horror is his wheel. Yeah, right. And, and you've been kind of, at least if you're if you've been paying a little bit of attention lately with say a movie like Get Out, mm-hmm. and just that idea of with its writer director, you know, being a comedian, and that idea yeah. of comedy and horror play in the same way. There's tension. You're waiting yeah. for something to happen, either the punchline or the stabbing. Definitely. Yeah. And so when you when you have that background, you can work within those two things. It, they, they're they're partnered in a way that people I don't think normally think of. Def, definitely, and, and also you know that old adage about you, the key to comedy horror is make the comedy as funny as possible and the horror right. as scary yeah. as possible. And you know we have sustained sequences of of broad physical comedy right and then but a sam raimi or a jordan peele they get that they understand it and then see you know sequences of of pure horror Mm -hmm. and that's one of my notes that's actually one of my next notes you know because when octavius when that whole thing happens there's real visceral violence happening in that room but without any blood you know his wife is dying Mm -hmm. but you still have that kind of you know, Sam Raimi's bringing that comic book action with the the sort of CGI glass falling down and yeah. her reflection in it. I mean, it's it's again, it's 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 one of those things that's that's done with a touch that is, you know. He's able he's able to make you kind of cringe, but without any. Actual on screen violence scene. Yeah, I, the the villain transformation scene, the way that it's designed and filmed and acted, it gives it a real, for want of a better term, Cronenbergian. Feel. Yeah, I I had the same thought when the needles go into his back. I felt that because it, and the distinction for me is it's like viscerally stylish, but it's not cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Like you at you, and this is something that the I I think we've mentioned before. Raimi is very good at at. at you know, showing the visceral impact, however stylized mm-hmm. his filmmaking is, you still feel it viscerally. Viscerally, and the biggest shock for me is like early on in the film, where uh, Peter's going to his class, and he falls down, and people continue to walk yeah. back and forth across him, and his face gets slapped to one side, and I, I'm just thinking about. Like obviously it's slapstick, but it's like it feels like you're being knocked about as a viewer, right? And it's like a, a small moment like that can have that kind of visceral impact. One of those students was Sam Raimi, by the way. Oh, even better. <laughs> so he knew, knew exactly he knew what how he was to doing. kick him in the face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's the same thing here. Like you, you don't lose a sense of what's physically happening. But it is extremely stylized and beautifully designed. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's why I said Cronenbergian, because that's what I associate with. with sure. Uh, you, you never lose a sense of, of the art and the, uh, you know, the physical reality at the same time. Uh, and also, you know, the reflection of a screaming face in 
yeah. in in an eye and in a shard of glass. I mean, that reminds me of Louis Brunel's surrealist films and mm. and Alfred Hitchcock's. Sure, I was going to uh, say Hitchcock horror yeah. films. Um, so, I mean, that's just the prelude to what I think is the the most Raimi esque <laughs> sequence in the whole film, which is the operation right. scene. And I mean, his mastery of schlock horror just gets full reign oh, it's, for a few minutes. It's, it's amazing. It's in-your-face action body horror. That includes, like, it, octo-arm vision. Yeah, and vi- visually and tonally, it's like a cutscene from Evil it, Dead It too. really is, And yeah. this is even before you see the chainsaw. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I was gonna... <laughs> the chainsaw seals the deal, but... And so, you know, I'm, I'm in absolute awe of that sequence being in the middle of this kind of uh, big budget, mainstream, mm-hmm. let's say family oriented. Yeah, but that's the thing, because it's family oriented. But, yeah. you know, like a dozen innocent doctors get killed in that scene. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's absolutely stunning. And then um, and then to sort of end it with the button of the Frankenstein mm-hmm. Uh, entrance. It's like it. It's like a. It's also playing with different traditions of horror. So you know, you've got you've basically had right. something that looks like it could have been. Well, and like I said too. earlier, with the effects team watching that scene, I mean, there's, you know, there's practical and CGI going on, but those yeah. arms feel really alive. Yeah, and that goes and then, a long then, way to what makes at least this character within this movie work. Yeah, and then and then the way that the character from this point onwards, having had this extremely schlocky transformation and an operation mm-hmm. scene, we go into like a more conventional but nonetheless very well executed uh, universal monster yeah, narrative. Right. Um, so it's really, really nice, really nicely done on both ends, and it, it's it takes a director like Sam Raimi to be able to negotiate both. Not to mention that he that he's not really doing a horror movie; he's just he's just adding horror to a right totally exactly yeah genre of filmmaking. Which is it, to your point, that's pretty phenomenal that you can have all of that in the same movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't, you know, I I. <laughs> I like that Sam Raimi's corny sometimes. No, I I agree. <laughs> like yeah. Some of his visuals are really corny. They are, like yeah. The the dream and the water fade. I'm like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that that look that could have been in a lifetime movie. Absolutely. But I but it's like I don't mind that he likes to have fun visually in this rather superficial. The way. reason I never mind it is because almost always when he's doing it, he can do it and make it good. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like you yeah. said, when you're seeing something that could be in a Lifetime movie, except you're enjoying it, it makes you enjoy it even a little bit more. Because <laughs> you respect it I... a little bit more. Because it shouldn't work as well as it does. But I also, you know, like, because we know it's his wheelhouse, we're talking about these these two scenes that that he's able to do so well, these, hor- these self-consciously hor- horrific sequences... I gotta say, I'm just as impressed by what he does with um, the action sequences in terms of editing oh, man. and mo- movement within the frame. Yeah. It achieves an almost balletic quality, mm-hmm. um, which I just think is 
again and it, it's like the antithesis of what he does with comedy because it's all about editing and it's all about moving the camera within you know within the shot yeah so he just shows this remarkable command of what i would say is a filmmaker totally different skill sets i the, you know and yet it still comes out as it still feels like the same sam raimi yeah but you can't but what he's doing you know he's got his fingers in very different pies mm-hmm. but, but the other thing that i was with an imagination and skill yeah the other thing i respect a lot because we're right about there now i think anyway you know there are set pieces in this movie but when the set oh, yeah. pieces show up they show up at a time that makes sense that yes. doesn't ruin the flow of the movie that feel like they belong and then on top yeah. of that they're great set pieces this robbing of the bank yeah and then the fight with aunt may and up on the side of the building this is what i remember seeing the move you know seeing the movie in the theater i remember thinking they came such a long way in just two years oh wow yeah that fight on the building specifically with the the vertigo involved and the constantly falling down and coming back up but still like you said there's there's a pace and you know a pace to it there's editing in a way that is um i think you know it's 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 interesting for a movie like this at that time that this mm-hmm. is when this movie is almost working at its best in some ways and other movies could never even come close to it yeah, not at that I time think, i think no and and the key to it is is you know making those tough decisions to sort of cut away from yeah, right the spectacle right i mean that you know the image of of you know you, you almost get into cgi sky fighting mm-hmm. but then Raimi cuts away just at the right time yeah. because before it becomes either unconvincing or boring or both yes and we do we go to something else even something as simple as you know a, a, a like a an old lady with a you know hanging hanging on, on with an umbrella yes yeah. which is the batman 66 of it all and the screaming big boob blonde right. you know it's like the, it's it's about it, it's it's a consciousness of there's one thing the oh, sorry, effect the effect on the effects work for us we don't work for yeah the exactly and but within it there's one part of that fight that always reminds me that we're 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 telling a mini story yeah <laughs> within yeah, this absolutely. fight and it you know when the, the when the clock hands come off and they're split in two and spidey slings them back at them and it sort of hits next to doc ock's head while he's still yeah. holding Aunt May, there's there's a a story kind of telling arc and editing within that 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 really reminds me that we're dealing with people that are doing this at the highest level. Yes. That and also you know like a it's it's actually it's a kind of crucial story point because he he abandons. His grandmother as, P- as P- Peter Parker, aban- yeah. As Peter Parker abandons his grandmother in order to be Spider Man. And this is called out even within the family. It's Joel McHale who calls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, who calls right, out. right. It's a good little cameo, um, right? Again, yeah, deep a, bench. Another, another, another part of the deep bench. So it's actually important, and that will, you know, 
the problem is we'll just keep reiterating the same story point because it's a Michael Shabon mm-hmm. script. But um, that that's the second act, really, isn't it? It's like which which one of these identities is Peter gonna adopt? Right. He has a very specific choice, and this is our first glimpse of the kind of conflict. Um, and in in je- one of the things that I like thematically about this film is and what it does really effectively it calls into question the heroism of heroes and the villainy of villains yes so you have that going right. on on both sides because dr octopus is we see him as a man first and he's fighting off becoming a villain mm-hmm. and peter's doing the same thing with heroism from the other side yeah um and to me that's you know i don't, we don't get into other spider-man movies but to me, that's way more dramatically effective than what they do with No Way Home, with the trying to redeem the villains through science. Mm-hmm. You know, just the idea is like you have a solid basis of a of a character. You build that from the ground from up. The, yeah, yeah. Instead of waiting for the third act to show the humanity of the villain, mm-hmm. it's way more interesting. I agree because you can follow that. Follow that arc. Follow through the through the whole film and you always know that they're a complex human being full of internal conflict well and i think i'm pretty sure you said this off air it helps when you have alfred molina it helps well (laughs) that's it and what i was really struck by i kept waiting for the moment in which his performance changes Mm -hmm. but it never does yeah right like the character that you see in the first scene is the way he plays it all the way through the mm-hmm. film. So there's no, he doesn't become, he's not, doesn't transform into anything. He's just fighting off bad impulses within mm-hmm. him. Uh, and that's, that's just, that's just really interesting. And it is why you need a strong actor, like, Albert like Albert Molina, right. Because he has to carry it all. He doesn't get, he has to do that all by himself. Nothing is going to help him do that. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's it's one of the many masterful performances in in the film, and you know, obviously coming after a showboating performance like Willem Dafoe in the last film, <laughs> you're giving people an entirely different performance and an entirely different character in slotted. In so in that way, role. it's an inversion, so yeah. It's an inversion, but it, it's a it's a really successful one. Mm-hmm. Really successful. <laughs> I was like, too, that like. <laughs> Sam Raimi always manages to get someone to look down the barrel of a camera and scream. Yeah, you know, those it's, it goes back to that corny idea. But there's also he, yeah, he loves that. He loves that zoom in to yeah, that, right. That zoom into the zoom into close up. But uh, I love he uses that visual language in quite interesting ways. And one of the ways I really liked was. Um, when when Doc Ock is approaching, yeah, he'll have the camera like every when you hear him approach. Right. When that's later in the movie, uh, when they're yeah, when yeah. he's yeah, you have the camera zooming in every time he gets closer and closer. It's like it's a really I love that interesting way to do that, and it and he's off screen as well. Right, it's the same. But again, it goes back to that visceral camera work. Yeah, right. Just using camera work to uh to do something that. It would take a lot of work to actually put on screen. 
And then I, you know, it's right around this point, right, where he's he decides to stop being Spidey. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, and we go into the music montage. Early, you know, we go early into two thousands. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Early two thousand superhero movies love having their superheroes resign about as much as <laughs> Sam Raimi loves about as much as Sam Raimi loves eye business. <laughs> You're not gonna let Batman off the it's hook. It's the thing. No, but that's it. But the, but this is pre this is pre Dark Knight. Right. You know, this is pre the Dark Knight trilogy. So. And Nolan saw that and thought that's an interesting idea. Quitting yeah. all the time. Every, apparently, everyone in Hollywood says uh, who was <laughs> dealing with a legacy franchise was like, oh, I'll yeah. have my hero resign." But I also like you know because it's also in this moment I think where he starts he confesses to Aunt May about his guilt over his uncle over uncle ben and i kind i like that this movie speaks to the continuity question of the previous movie in which the audience knows something but the you know the character has been keeping a secret that pays off a movie later cuz that it, you know it grounds the movie in a way that i think is important and interesting for a sequel. You know what I mean? Yeah. To carry that secret over and, and have that be sort of, you know, something he's been dealing with. Yeah. Without retconning everything that happened in, in that. Yeah. Moment. Right. <laughs> as the, which as, will happen which soon. The, the, which just happens in, in the next movie. Yeah. And, and so, and yeah, un, here's a, you know, another imbass. Uncle Ben comes back from the dead. <laughs> right. Yes, um, of course. In what feels like a recap, but is actually a brand new scene. Yeah. <laughs> and you can tell because he looks visibly older, even just a few yeah. couple years later. Yeah, absolutely. And then this is where I have the, it, this, this section of the movie where I, I began to realize that how much Superman 2 was yes. informing the storyline of this Yeah, film. me too. Because the, you know, that the, the Superman 2. It's all about, about quitting. This time, about this time in Superman 2, he decides he doesn't want to be Superman anymore. Yeah. And for largely the same reasons. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're definitely following in the footsteps of, of long-held cinematic superhero tradition. But I think you're right in the sense, because this movie does get weighed down in it a little bit, because there's multiple scenes of him yeah. hearing or seeing crime that he's not going to respond to. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, I, I think it. I think it. Uh, I like the. Yeah, I mean the 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 mont. I kind of think the montage, the raindrops montage, is sort of all you really need. Yeah, right. Um, and it's fun as well because it's got all this kind of Jack Tatty, Chaplin esque. Yeah. Uh, Self aware slapstick in it. Um. And of course, and that you know the play within the film is also you know they pick the importance of being earnest in which the main character has a double life. So obviously, sure, that fact you know there are no irrelevant pieces of literature in no yeah no. <laughs> in movies. Well, um, it's funny too because there's a there's a moment in this movie where you know Aunt May's finally leaving the house and he says, "Hey, what about my comic books?" And she says, "Oh, yeah. those awful things." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. It understands it's playing with different 
ends of the cultural spectrum, right? right? In 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 literature. I felt they got really lucky with the eBay reference. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. I was just like I was like that could have dated, but but it didn't. It hasn't because <laughs> it's still with us, but they didn't know that. <laughs> And then I, I thought there was like a, a bit of uh, unintentional Kerber enthusiasm when Spider-Man's walking away from a mugging. Yeah. It was just like... I, I wanted It felt to very to last camera. episode of Seinfeld. Exactly. I wanted him to turn to camera and uh, say, <laughs> oh, that's a, sh- that's a shame. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, because speaking to the weighing down, it's, you know... This movie has a callback because now we have a, a second fire scene, which is in the first movie. Yeah, and it's not just that. I, I mean, I'd forgotten about that, but it's also a self-consciously hokey setup, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's a plan. You know, it's a setup before. Uh, or did it turn out to be a setup? No, well, in the first one, oh, I thought you meant like a setup for him choosing to be Spider-Man again. Oh. In the first movie, it's oh. a setup. The the goblins in the house to attack. It's not in, in this, this one movie. It no, not oh, in that okay. way. No. But I definitely thought that was what it was going to be. So it surprised me in that sense. Okay. But, um. You know, it had because it's directed by Sam Raimi. It had, feels like it has real stakes, even if it doesn't necessarily. But yeah, you could absolutely do without it, right? Uh, like a lot of stuff in the second act, just doesn't. It can be done way more efficiently and uh, with fewer scenes. Mm-hmm. I think. Now we haven't given uh, much. It's not it's not a sh- and it's not a short movie. No, yeah. It doesn't feel necessarily overlong, but it's not a short movie. No, yeah. <laughs> it's a full two hours, you know. Two twelve, I think. Oh. One of the, I think I think the next one is two twelve. I think this is like No, the next one's like two twenty. Oh dear. Maybe this one's two oh seven. I forget. Um and also just some like, you know, it just feels like they lose their writing faculties a little bit in this section in a number of ways. Mm. The scene where Peter's talking to himself mm-hmm. in his apartment. Uh, I thought, well, the neighbor's about to come over and have this conversation with you anyway. So, so do we need him yeah. talking to himself? Right. Like, we don't need to double up. Right? It's one or the other, really. Yeah. But I, I suppose, I suppose, I suppose, you know, if if I was Michael Shabon trying to mount a defense, I'd say that this section's all about tying up loose ends. Maybe. Uh, but I don't think that's justification enough for how how long it takes and how deep into the weeds we get with some of this stuff. Yeah, all right. I'll agree with that. Let's tie off uh, this end. Take another break. Also, we know Spider-Man's going to come back in the third act. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's a, little, a given. It's a, little insulting. it's a little insulting to our intelligence to have to wait so long for that revelation. Heard. Anyway. Yeah, I get it. We're on the same page, I think, on that one. Yeah. I think maybe a, there's so much there's enough there's enough for me to enjoy in this sort of overbloated second act that uh, it doesn't tear down the movie too much for me. Yeah. But but you're not wrong. All right. Let's come back and then we'll finish up. Right after this, everyone. 
If you like podcasts like I do, boy, do I have a treat for you. You need to stay on target and check out the Sounds and Cinema podcast. Listen as your host, sound designer and music creator, Tony Parham, and co-host, musical performer and sound lover, Derek Hansen, D-Rock if you're nasty, and I am, discuss all things sound related to film, television, stage, and theatrical productions. They discuss environmental sounds, bioacoustics, dialogue, the nature of communication through sound, but as an added bonus, they drink beer and try to... Stay on target! Find them wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the pure mania of a man who can charitably be described as Doug, the dog from Up, and another man with a soothing and sultry voice trying to get that man to... Stay on target! That's the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Tune in and listen to the sounds they are creating just for you. We're back once again. Tom and I are here to finish up with Spider-Man 2, the 2004 sequel to Spider-Man. <laughs> That's right. Couldn't be clearer. <laughs> Couldn't be any clearer than that. <laughs> so now... Um, I mean, we're in this section of the movie. We're almost to the third act. You know, yeah. he's thrown the uh, costume away. We have kind of a, you know, we have good fun bits with J.K. Simmons again because he's got the suit and all of that. And Yeah, we see that. We, we get the, the moment in a J.K. Simmons performance where you see the humanity of the character just for a second. For, for a brief moment. Where it just, and then he goes back to being the worst human being in the world. <laughs> Love that. In Whiplash, it's it's at the very beginning where he's got doing his first rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And he's going, I just I want it a little faster, just a little. It's a, it's a little too still too yeah. a little too uh, not quite my tempo. Too slow for me. Yeah, not, that's it. Not quite my <laughs> tempo like that. And then within seconds, he's throwing drunk yeah. sticks at him. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was rewatching that movie recently, and I thought of you because, you know, it felt like. Uh, like your Yoda argument. <laughs> I was like, hey, he got it. He, he got that drum solo out of him in the he end. He did. <laughs> I also, I mean, I speaking of J.K. Simmons, his performance in Burn After Reading is one of oh. the... It, it literally, it, I can't think of, of any other films where one performance has saved an entire movie. Yeah, because I, I don't like that movie on the whole. No, I don't like it at all. When he comes on screen, suddenly everything makes sense. Yeah. I also, you know, I, you mean? know, like, I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only part of the movie that is, is like, once he comes on screen, you go, oh, I get what this movie's about now. <laughs> I get the tone of this movie. Right, yeah. I did not know what the tone of this movie was until he came on screen. I strangely and found myself me. unable to forgive that movie once they killed Brad Pitt. Sure. <laughs> Just it seems so mean. But in in what is essentially a cameo in that film, yeah, he salvaged an entire movie's worth of unsuccessful storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're not talking about that movie, though. We're talking no, about we are talking about J.K. Simmons. Yeah, in one of his best performances. In one, yeah, exactly. You know, and he's one of those actors. And I, I mean, we've obviously we discussed it before but this movie gets the most out of everybody everybody that's in it i mean when elizabeth banks is 
you know, that far down on your bench, you're having a, you got, you got yourself some good actors. Yeah. And I think one of the best choices in the, in the film that really pre- prevents it becoming from too, too sappy mm-hmm. when we get to the wedding. Yeah. Uh, it's all through his perspective. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> one of the best moments of the film for me is when, is when we're, uh, we're tracking down the aisle. <laughs> towards the, JK, towards the astronaut. Simmons, he steps in. His head just peers into view. <laughs> and then the rest of the film is all through his perspective. The rest of the scenes, all his perspective. <laughs> yes. And I thought, what a brilliant choice. It's great. And he's barely in the next movie, and I think that's a big part of the problem. <laughs> exactly. Hey, I was going to ask you, though, there's this scene where, you know, he Peters talks to the doctor, and then he wants, you know, he's kind of decided he wants to get his, his groove back. Yes. And he's going to do that with a with a very risky test as he's... But you have that slow motion run. Mm-hmm. So do you hate it? Because of the slow motion, I think no, it's shot it's... so interestingly, though, by Sam Raimi. Yeah, no, I mean he—if there's someone I trust with slow motion, it's Sam Raimi. All right, he's—he's he's got cinematic technique under his control, <laughs> and he, you know he then then we we go into real time at the end of that with him. My, my back. I love my it back. too. Because as then he's going went... through the air, he's so happy, and he says, "I'm back!" Like I'm back, baby. And then he, he of course, falls down. Yeah. My back. It's and again, stuff. you know, it. They're good. It's a good example of undercutting the grandiosity of your heroes. Sure. I mean, there's a great scene earlier on where he's dragging a bicycle behind him, (laughs) which could have been, I mean, I don't know if it's a reference to a Buster Keaton movie, but it could have been straight Mm -hmm. out of The General or something. (laughs) And I love that that's our, I love that that's our hero. You know, it's, 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 he's in that Buster Keaton mold. Well, and I also found it really interesting. neither Neither too idealized nor too, uh, unlikable yeah right 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 it's the perfect perfect balance well i found it interesting because i had referenced earlier where the first movie ends and his decision and then they sort of pose that question again but in a way that makes complete sense for the characters the arc they've had through this movie where he and mary jane are talking and she flat out asks him do you love me and he has to lie to her a second time. And it has just as much dramatic effect in that moment for me as it does at the end of the first movie. Mm, that's great. That is, yeah. That's a really... Um... And part of that is Sam Raimi, because he's got like a slight push in. And the actors are giving some really good acting because... And we've talked about this before, just generally about film, yeah. regardless of sequels, but... When you're allowing an actor to show you what they're thinking instead of just always saying what they're thinking. Oh, yeah. You know, that that goes a long ways. And that, that's a great moment for that, that moment. I wanted to ask you about something which I'm just interested in knowing your thoughts about mm-hmm. it. The 9-11 of it all. Like, how much is that? I mean... I thought about I, that, but only in reference to how much it wasn't on my mind oh. as I watched this movie. Because it doesn't. What about the what about the the uh, the L train sequence? Mm-hmm. 
with all the doughy New Yorkers standing up for Spider-Man. I thought that was a definite 9-11 reference. I guess I I equate it more just to... Because it happens in the first movie, too. Right, and I think it's a callback. And that's right. That. It's and, a, you know, so I guess but, I was they, thinking in terms processed... of a callback. But to me... But that was about 9-11. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's certainly a reference. Like, I always took it as sort of the resiliency of the people of the city, which, of yeah. course, has something to do with 9-11. Uh, but even going back to, what was it, 93 with the bombing in the... Uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know? yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's not... I guess it's not... It wasn't an overt thought to me, but... But upon reflection, yes, of course, I, I always think of it about the resiliency of the city and sort of who they'll stick up for. But that and plays I, into 9-11, obviously. And, I, you know, I think about it, what, what happened off screen with the original Spider-Man basically losing its ending because of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And how you know it had to make those big changes, and so I wonder whether there is like an attempt to process that in this film. Maybe they go big on the in this sequence. They go big on the Christian imagery as well. Yeah, yeah. And they're carrying Spider Man. I say again, like something about the early two thousands and right. labored Christian imagery in uh, in superhero movies. Man, can't get enough it, of it. And it's funny too because throughout the entire series including the first movie there seems to be a fetish with you know showing his face yeah you know yeah i i mean I... there's always got to be an explosion that takes off half that mask <laughs> the, the the same specific parts of that mask right well, yeah which is a li- seems to be the to weak believe. point of the sewing <laughs> I was gonna, yeah, rebuild that mask in a way that that part doesn't immediately come off with any trauma. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, this I guess it's another sort of Marvel point of distinction that the the secret identity doesn't really matter mm-hmm. quite as much. I love the moment where the you know the one guy on the train says, "Jesus, he's just, he's a, just kid. a kid." Jesus, he's just a kid. Yeah, I like what I kind of like about that scene is. It's a plausible reason as to why those people would keep it to themselves. Yeah. Because they, they don't want to admit to themselves that they're idolizing a teenager. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that made total sense to me. But I, I also like, you know, obviously, if you're comparing this to Superman 2, they walk they walk the, the reveal of the secret identity back with the date rape kiss. Yeah. But there's none of that here. No, no, that's, no. That's good. And, and that's, that's a good, good thing, yes. When someone learns who Spider-Man is, But just chooses not to yeah. reveal it. They choose not to reveal it, but certain characters learn his identity and they factor it into the ongoing And you know what's line. interesting that I'm only thinking about right now in this moment is the idea of maybe you couldn't get away with that in the new iteration of Spider-Man because of where we are in culture right now. Everybody's everybody's an investigative reporter with their phone. And, you know, we seem to have this. Well, that's kind of what happens in no way. How the, well, the, the end of. Yeah. Whatever the second uh, Tom Holland wand is right. at the beginning of no way home. <laughs> um, that he gets, you know, revealed to that he gets. Right. Uh, 
outed on social media and yeah i i think i i think that's probably a part of it although that i i think iron man 2 is the is the one i think of where he stands up at the press conference and just no that's the end of iron man the first one oh yeah he's he's just tired of it you know it's just it's tiresome it's a tiresome convention and that's the way it seems in that movie but it's all just very tony stark to say yeah i'm him yeah but i think there's a similar thing here of like you know we gain more from certain people knowing that it's peter parker than Mm -hmm. we do from trying to keep it a secret artificially but I also think we're kind of burying the lead because I love this train fight. Uh, yeah, I, I think, think it's, it's so it's... much fun. What? Yeah, I I think it I think it's fun. I think it it starts off we start off seeing something that we've seen before, and it starts to feel a bit repetitive mm-hmm. when it's just the two of them fighting in midair. Yeah. Uh, and then we shift to this train section, which is so vibrant it's almost nauseatingly so yeah like right constant movement um and yeah i think my but, note was like the 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 effects go to another level even within yeah. the the own you know this movie but again like raimi is still playing impact on the body mm-hmm in a way that Marvel just doesn't do now. Like, it never feels this bit... What's happening to Peter at the front of that train... Yeah. Never feel... You never get that now. You never feel that kind of threat, physical threat to the characters and the way you feel. No, yeah. Um, So that's what really, you know, hugely impressed me. Um, And it still stands out, that idea of... I think it's amazing what Sam Raimi is able to do because you you understand what's happened to his body that you know the the chemistry is different that there's some you know he can be knocked into bricks yeah. and that kind of shit but the toll that it took to stop that train and the ripping of you know the yeah, sleeves no, and, you it, know yeah. it's it's visceral in a way uh and again even with just Toby Maguire and his acting you know um yeah all of it comes together well, in a way you... that's re- like really super compelling so it looks like Sam Raimi's blowing like a maximum power leaf blower in his face. Yes, yeah, right. Because <laughs> yeah. he's he's going into that Richard Nixon re-entry. Yes, from the, yeah, from the Simpsons, right? And you know, again, it's like that's something that's, that CGI simply can't do for you in a way that makes you feel it in your bones. Mm-hmm. And so, choosing to to emphasize the threat on the body. Yeah. And I mean, I guess if you come from a tradition of body horror, it's second nature to you. But it's not second nature to the people who made Marvel movies after After this. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and, you know, speaking to choices made, you know, because we have this bit, the whole reason that Doc Ock shows up is because he wants he he's going to take Spider-Man to Harry. Yeah, because he's figured it out. By the way, he should have figured it out way sooner. I mean, (laughs) when. When Peter disappears at Doc Ock's thing and Spider-Man yeah. shows up 10 seconds later, you know, one and one do equal two. But I'll put that aside for now. Yes. Uh, but the choice that this movie makes to have a, a complete arc for Harry mm-hmm. that kind of ends not on the very last scene, but, you know, toward, at the very end of this movie that you know is going to happen in the next movie. Restraint right. is what I'm talking about, because the next movie has no restraint in any way, shape, or form. 
Yeah. And so I, I just like that, you know, it, it gives the, it gives it weight. You, you, you feel, you know, even though you know that Harry's wrong, you're not siding with him, but you understand his anger. Yeah. And it's, uh, again, it's that sort of, it, it, it reminds you that you're telling, you're telling a story throughout these three. Yeah. Movies, right. Rather than just, you know, that, that there are some storylines that come and go. And then there are some that are carrying all the way through. And this isn't, you know, this is uh, one that sets up like a, a next generation villain. Mm -hmm. uh, that is also looping back to the original, the original film. I'm starting to think like, because this is a trilogy. So this is the yeah. middle part of a trilogy. This is another really yeah. good middle trill, you know, part it of a is, trilogy. Yeah, yeah. The choice to just kind of like leave that as a tease. Yeah, right. Is very good. Um, but to sort of give you a satisfyingly, because this this is also a romantic comedy, mm -hmm. and to give us like the, you know, give us the when Harry met Sally. Yeah, sure. Well, it gives us the graduate, and then it gives us when Harry met yes. Sally. <laughs> yes. It's like it's like Rob Reiner's original ending for. For when Harry, when Harry met, met Sally, Sally you know, right? Of them not getting together and then they get together, um, yeah. Uh, and then I in the, like in the final shots of the film, the battle. Um, you mean like the last with Doc Ock or? Well, so well, yeah. Are you so talking for, after I mean, the wedding? For, after the, well, after the wedding, I mean, I really because to liked... me this is as great as good an ending as the first movie. The go-getter tiger, yeah. but like just the right kind of ominous music as she watches him leave. You have a sense that, yeah, you know, there will be a toll on I the have, relationship. Yeah. yeah, I mean, first of all, we should say that, that you know, projecting a storyline into the next movie is done really well, but also wrapping up what happens with Octavius is done very well. Yeah. And I love the line, I will not die a monster, because, yeah. you know, that's, that is, he, he's... It reminds you he is a universal monster. He's a tragic figure. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and all those monsters... What characterized those monsters from villains, to be, at least to me, was that they all had a tragic element of self-loathing. Right. Right? It's like, even King Kong, you know, it's like... Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. All the, all the way down to that, but certainly... Well, you know, I also... The creature and the mummy and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, they're all... They didn't want to be what they what were. they were, right? Yeah, exactly. They didn't relish <laughs> and it, and that's what Octavius is going through. And here. what else I also loved is there's an acting moment within that when he gets knocked around a little bit, and all of a sudden he's himself again. He's Otto. Yeah. And Peter Parker, he comes down and he sees Spider Man, but of course the mask is obliterated. So he says, "Peter Parker." And the surprise on his face when, you know, and yeah. he even says what he had referenced before, you know, smart but lazy. Yeah. Uh, I just a really, again, like having Alfred Molina. Yeah. Because because then you you get to you get and you get into that moment where you you it's like like you said, you can pity the monster. Yeah. You yeah. Because he's that's, not he's not choosing it. And he never really, I mean, he never really was a monster yeah, as right. well, which is another other interesting thing about the characterization. Yeah. It was just literally struggling against the worst aspects of his 
personality, mm-hmm. which were always there. Yes, right. Um, which is much, uh, just a more interesting. Story. But going but yeah, back those... to that first scene when he when he yeah. first meets Peter, because that's a part yeah. of it. It is. You can, absolutely. You can see in his it's performance one, his hubris, his yeah. yeah, like his that kind of god complex thing that you have in doctors or scientists that are doing something important. Yeah. Um, it's all there. Yeah. Um and those like I, I think as you were saying, those final shots, uh you know, we have we have a hap- a nominally happy ending and then those final shots without Oh, before we get there, because I just have a note, I just want to say I also like when the side of the building falls down and he gets underneath it. I love when he's looking at her and just says, this is really heavy. (laughs) That's a very solid joke. (laughs) Um, Like walking back some of that euphoria. Yeah, right, exactly. an, An ambivalent look from MJ. There's that sense uh, of what it's going to do. And their relationship is just beginning. And that really takes the edge off the CGI helicopters. Yeah. (laughs) Because there's no way... There are no good CGI helicopters. It's my second... (laughs) The only good good CGI helicopter is not a CGI helicopter. Yeah, it's my second to last note after the ominous MJ looking... But uh, I just wrote. And that also, I just you know, wrote keeps... all bad CGI helicopter or all CGI helicopters are bad CGI yeah. helicopters. But that's not what you draw. But because the movie's well directed, yeah. you're not drawn to that. You're thinking about MJ, and and you're also thinking about how it keeps the story open for for another yeah. for for another phase of their um, another phase of their story. I mean, it's it's. You know, I think I think the the character is is well written and played. There are certain kind of limitations of which I think are about representation, and mm-hmm. we just don't see the potential for women to play an active role in stories like this, right. even as recently as two thousand and two. And I think you know the fact that this movie kind that there's a there's a scene in this movie where Kirsten Dunst is tied to a pole screaming unable to to do anything except be rescued yeah with with you know uh essentially like with water drenching her so you can see so her, you can the see outline of, outline of a nipple like, right yeah it's like that representation wouldn't and shouldn't pass today yeah uh and they, there's a little there's a little bit of correction of that in the next film which i think is fascinating because mm-hmm. it's definitely the weaker film and the weaker representation of mj but this film feels more limited as to what. No, yeah, I get what you mean for sure. Yeah, especially when your only other female character is really Aunt May. Yeah, Aunt May, um, and yeah, who, maybe the <laughs> actor gonna... she works with on <laughs> the importance of being earnest, who I think you see later at the wedding, but you, you know, yeah, with almost and, no uh, lines. <laughs> that's that's and Elizabeth Elizabeth Banks. Yeah, that's true. Um. But uh, yeah, and Aunt May is not going to pass the Betchel test with the amount that she talks about right. Uncle Ben. <laughs> right? She's not. She's not getting no out of Bechtel that. Test passing she's for she's not May passing this that Betchel test. No, 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 no. Because there's too much Uncle it's all Ben she coming talks out of her about. mouth. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. That and some that and some of the racial stuff that also you know that sticks in your a craw. Bit of taste in yeah. my mouth. But that's about the time in which the film is made, not yeah. the film itself. Yeah, I agree. Now, uh, well, first, anything left for you? Any lingering notes? No, I think no, not not necessarily. No. What about a credit check? Well, of course. <laughs> um. Uh, web design. <laughs> Simple, stark, effective graphic to end the film. Uh, I love the way it's kind of reminiscent of the, uh, the older black and white comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a really nice choice. Like the type, both the title sequence and this got some gra- amazing graphic design choices. I agree. And um. I love the fact, I don't know if this is a superhero specific thing, but I love the descriptive credits. Things like amazed kids. Yeah, right. This leaves nothing to chance for the audience or maybe the person in the role finding where they are in the credits. Right, because it also, like... but it harkens back to sort of airplane. Yeah, the, that's what like, I don't know how, like, when there's the, the lines that they say. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like, it's like instead of man one, man two, woman one, yeah. uh, it's like, uh, woman shouting at Superman. It's like, oh, well that must be me. Yes. So I'm the only one shouting at a supermarket in this film. <laughs> uh, yeah. The and... guy who said, you know, stop cupping her breast, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> followed by who said that? Yeah, well, is it? It's the naked gun where they just naked gun. Yeah, it's naked gun. Say. You're right. They just have the dialogue. They the say dialogue they say, yeah. Which uh, I mean, that really is going above and beyond. Look out! I think. <laughs> 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 um. Now, I despise Michael Bublé. Uh, <laughs> well, add it to the I... list of people you hate. Fuck. I, I, I agree with Steve Coogan when asked, where do you stand on Michael Bublé? Uh, to which he replied, on his windpipe, preferably. <laughs> um, but let me tell you, I'd be happy to have that big band Spider-Man theme played all the way through the credits <laughs> instead of that whiny emo rock. Yeah. Period specific. I I I have that nonsense. I have that note for both of these films. Just like, oh, it's like I know it's the music of the time, and these are teenagers, but stop. You've got a big band. You've got a big band version um, of Spider Man mm-hmm. to play with. Do it, you know, just just. Uh... Just do it. What a great, just, what a great just ending. Just do it. That's all I have. Done. Done. All right then, sir. Spider done. Yeah. Spun your last web. Hey, there you go. No, you haven't spun your last web because next no. we'll be talking about Spider-Man and it Three. Is a web. Oh, I'll say. Oh, but we're drowning in gossamer. <laughs> but first, ladies and gentlemen, you'll have to tell us what you think of Spider-Man 2. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter to let us know. Send us an email to everythingsequel at gmail.com to tell us your feelings. 
that's it for us on Spider-Man 2. We're fans. This is a good movie. Yeah. Cautious fandom. <laughs> you say, save your real riotous fandom for Superman 3. Uh, yeah, like like any like any reasonable human being. <laughs> I mean, Spider Man too. It's okay, but it's no. Yeah, it's no. Richard Pryor falling off the eighty stories on skis. Let me tell yeah. you, it's no getting a blowjob at the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> <laughs> talking about sucks. Talking about sucks with Robert Vaughn. Come on. <laughs> All right. That's it for us, ladies and gentlemen. For Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, Michael Schantz here of the How Dare You Awards. You heard me. Up next, Spider-Man 3. Say goodbye to everybody, Tom. If you have an extraterrestrial's head in there, you're the third guy this week. <laughs> you should make them all from him. I know. It's it's, Hard it's not tempting to. to there. I mean, you know, most of them are... Uh, either setups or punchlines yeah. though there's not actually that many of um that are, that are like quotable in that sense it's all about <laughs> the patter yes i forgot to mention as well like those those news newsroom scenes mm -hmm. that's when you really remember that sam raimi co-wrote the hudsucker proxy yeah because <laughs> yeah. all that patter is is uh time to perfection delightful yeah trust my barber <laughs> so long everyone <laughs>